Welcome to the Parenting Well podcast with Parent Engagement Network. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, your host, and today you are listening to Parenting Well, where we know that parenting well is challenging and that all parents are the best parents they know how to be. We firmly believe that the foundation for raising healthy, happy youth is for us as parents to fill our own well with useful, reliable, credible information, tools, and strategies. Having a well of resources leaves us more engaged, educated, and empowered to support our children in being strong, resourceful, confident, and resilient in the face of life's many challenges and adventures. So let's fill that well. Today's well source is Bill De La Cruz. Bill is an exceptional mediator and leader who has been guiding individuals and groups through the process of personal transformation for more than 30 years. He is passionate about helping individuals and groups build self-awareness, enhance relationships, and foster positive and sustainable personal growth. His approach to bias work grew out of his own experiences, attending hundreds of self-help trainings and self-help books that instructed him to do the work. However, they failed to define what the work should look like. From this, he has developed daily practices that continue to support his personal growth and self-awareness, and he is committed to sharing these with others. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks, Shelly. I'm really excited for this conversation because, as you know, this is not just my passion. It's my own personal work that I've been on my own journey for a long time. So I'm really excited to be able to share this with all of your listeners. So let's dig right in. Okay. Um, So the first question I want to ask you is, I know that you really aspire to create a more humane world, which which means to end stereotypes and division and judgment. Where do you think this starts? So the why for what drives me to do this work is really important. And so the why is really that to create a more humane world, because if we look at the world today, it's not very humane. There's so many divisions and so many ways that people just in the way that we see each other and talk to each other and are socialized, that it creates all of this divisiveness. And and especially the last couple of years, we've essentially been socialized to fear each other around um, the pandemic and around you have a mask on and and it's so interesting. I travel a lot and I'll be in an airport and hear somebody sneeze and 20 people will turn their head to see who is that person and do they have a mask on? And and I'm, I'm waiting for the day when they walk over to see their vaccine card and things like that. And so So I think where it starts is really with each individual, with each person, each one of us, really using self-awareness and critical self-reflection to create an environment where we can have conversations with the people who are around us, the people in our communities, the people in our workspaces, to really start to understand that a lot of people are carrying a lot of stuff these days. And I was just in Washington working with a group of educators, and we finished on a Monday afternoon and Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. I woke up and I had this email in my box and I wanna share it because I was so moved by it. So it starts out, it says, you are a healer. Following your training today at my school, I feel compelled to tell you this. Your words and approach were soul mending in many ways I have longed for over the past many months. Today, I heard hope in all caps. 
My husband and I are an interracial couple and we have one son. Your message today spoke deeply into a wound that I've been carrying on behalf of my family for many months. We fall outside most boxes in many unusual ways. So this season has burdened my soul and placed a weight there that I didn't even know I was carrying. I'm grateful for your message and insight. Thank you. So the idea of this is, is not because this work is about me. It's really about a process that I use and that I created that just takes people into these deep places of vulnerability that allows them to share their stories with each other, their stories of who they are and how they're really feeling, not this thing about, oh, how are you today? Oh, I'm good. It's more about not just how are you today, but who are you today? And, and what are you carrying today? And, and this is in a school workspace where vulnerability isn't always the way that people show up because it's so content driven and so professionally driven that we don't always associate vulnerability and vulnerability-based trust with a professional environment. And, and so, so for me, creating humanity means that I have to work on myself. And so, because a lot of my behaviors when I was young were pretty inhumane. I was a pretty mean kid and I was a hurt kid. I grew up in a family of abuse where my dad was beating up at me and beating up on me at nine years old and giving me this narrative that I was a worthless piece of crap. I'd never amount to anything. I'd never be successful. And so I created all of these stereotypes and biases and judgments, not only about other people, also about myself. And so as I was carrying those things, I realized over time that I was acting out in this very inhumane way with other people. And not only was I being inhumane to other people, I was also blaming them for why it was okay for me to treat them that way. And so, so I actually rationalized it in my head as to say, well, you deserve for me to treat you poorly. And, and so that was a lot of ego and arrogance. And, and so the idea of, of creating a more humane world for me has really been about how do I rehumanize myself? And I think we're at a point today in our communities and in our society where we really need to think about that. How do we rehumanize and create connections in a space where we've, we're more divided in this country than we've ever been. We have more um, socialization to judgments and stereotypes about each other that are rooted in fear and division. And the only way that I can change that is to change myself. So that's really where it, it starts with self. And I think that's both the, easy thing and also the most challenging thing because it's really hard to look at it was really hard to look at myself and see what a jerk I really was and say that my behavior was what was actually perpetuating the results that I was getting and and it's and it's been an evolution when I was young and I had a negative interaction with somebody my first question was what's wrong with you Today, when I have a negative interaction with somebody, my first question is, what is it about me that's experiencing you like this? Mm -hmm. So I've learned to take ownership for myself and I've learned to apologize if I make a misstep. And, and I think that's the most challenging piece is to, 
reflect because just like that email I shared with you, even though it brought up a lot of pain for that participant in our work, it also created a space for her to start her healing process and to understand kind of what all those emotional charges have been that she's been carrying around. And that piece of that you're talking about of self-reflection, it really starts with vulnerability, right? Like if you can't go there first and be vulnerable and be able to be honest with yourself about who you are and how you react, you can't really start that process of doing the work. Yeah, it's it's really starting with self-awareness. So self-awareness is basically a way for us to start to say, oh, this is who I am. Oh, this is how I act. This is how I talk. This is my behavior. And self-awareness is just the beginning step. So the next step after self-awareness is critical self-reflection. And so when we couple self-awareness with critical self-reflection, then that gives us the ability to now really um, dissect what it is that we became aware of. So, so it's, it's, the, it's the actualization of self-awareness or the action part. So for me, self-awareness without some level of action is a waste of time because all I've done is surface something and said, oh yeah, I see that now about myself. Then the actualization of it is to say either that part of myself has the impact that I want and I want to keep building on it, or that part of myself doesn't have the impact I want and I want to shift it. And so critical self-reflection allows us to be able to then dissect and really critically kind of look in a mirror and say, what is it that I'm seeing in my behavior? And what is the impact that it's having on other people absent any kind of rationalization or justification, or they deserve it, just really looking at actually what's the impact of how I'm treating another person. And this sounds like it's a big piece of the bias work you do when you places like going to schools that you shared earlier. Yeah, the the bias tool is is a whole nother level of really critical self-reflection that this process that I created supports people in going from maybe not even thinking that they're biased to understanding that being biased is a normal part of being human and also judging each other is a normal part of being human. Being socialized to stereotypes about each other is normal. And absent critical self-reflection, we're not really able to look at the impact of all of those things around just how we're socialized to messages about each other. When we watch the news or when we look at uh, the the internet or when we listen to talk radio and, and all of those places are all complicit in this socialization of, you know, of in a lot of ways, a lot of false narratives about who we are and how people show up. If someone that's listening to this wants to do some of this work themselves, what is something they can start to do even right now that would help them to start this process? What's a good strategy? So I do I do these things called daily practices. So a daily practice is anything that you choose to do for a short amount of time with hyper-awareness. So a daily practice around stereotypes or judgments could be that for the next hour when I'm out in the world, I'm just going to track all the times that I judge people or that I stereotype people. And it's just things like looking at somebody and going, wow, how could you dress that way? Or I don't really like them, or they just cut me off. They're a bad person. All of those things that go through our heads that 
in some way connect to another human being's behavior or look or and so with the daily practice it's it's something you can do for a short amount of time with hyper awareness so you could say for 10 minutes i'm going to be aware of my stereotypes and judgments and then the next time you increase it to 15 minutes and then 30 minutes and then an hour and then it builds to a whole day and and journaling is really great. I, I journaled a lot. I had a lot of people that I talked to. And I realized that like when I was journaling, the first few times that I did it, I ran out of paper because I had so many judgments and stereotypes that I'm like, gosh, I need more paper because I ran out. I was that um, entrenched in my own thinking about looking at people through this lens that I created and then I labeled them. And so when I started to become aware of that, then then I just would look at that and start to get to the story of where it started. So I'm going to share a whole process here, and then you can jump in wherever you want with questions. So the, the self-awareness, critical self-reflection is the very interpersonal part that allows people to be able to surface those behaviors. And when we talk about impact, we can't talk about it without talking about intent. So intent and impact, it's been talked about a lot in, in certain spaces. So here's what it actually means. So intent is aspirational. Intent is something that hasn't happened. So when you asked me to join you on this podcast, I started thinking about all the things that I wanted to share and the ways that I wanted to interact with you and the things that I thought were important. And it's aspirational because we hadn't talked yet. So in an hour when we're done, I'll think about the impact. So the impact is factual. And I'll go over this time that you and I have spent together. And I'll think about our personal conversation that we had before we even started. I'll think about the questions you asked me. And, and I'll do that from this place of critical self-reflection to look at, did my impact match my intent? And if my impact matches my intent, then I tell myself, well, let me just continue to do what I'm doing and build on, on, on that process. If my impact doesn't match my intent, then I just tell myself, what is it that I want to do differently next time? And I think what's really important is that to do this work, we need to do it outside of judgment that leads to blame or shame. Mm -hmm. And just being aware of self-awareness of self-judgment that leads to self-blame and self-shame. Because I know in my own personal growth work, I've shut myself down as soon as I've labeled myself as a bad person or a stupid person, or I should be ashamed of those thoughts, rather than just looking at that as a normal part of my growth process. So this idea of intent and impact is, again, another way and opportunity to use not only self-awareness, also to use critical self-reflection as the way to really understand the impact. And so understanding the impact means I have to think about how did it affect somebody else? In this case of our podcast, how did it affect you? Or what kind of questions did I bring up with you? And how was I interacting with you? And so for folks who are just starting this work, I think the most important piece is being aware of judgment that leads to blame or shame, especially with yourself, also as it gets pushed out to other people. And here's why. So judgment lives up here in my head and stereotypes live in my head and biases live in my head. So if I'm interacting with you or anyone else and I start judging you, and when we talk about judgment, 
we're talking about every level of identity that a human being has. So we're talking about race, age, gender, body image, accent, how somebody's dressed. As soon as we start judging them, we're no longer present with them because we're interacting with them based on the story that we're making up about them versus who they authentically are in that space that two people are, are sharing. And so for me, the practice of becoming more aware of my judgments and stereotypes and biases has meant that I'm now much more aware of when they come into my head. And so I have strategies to just be able to tell myself, you're judging this person, let that go and come back and be present. Because I wanna interact with people as authentically as I can these days, because I've spent a good part of my life making up stories about people and interacting with them based on my own biased and stereotyped experiences. And so I've missed out on a lot of um, authentic interactions with a lot of people over the years. And I'm at a point now where I don't wanna miss out anymore because people are really interesting to me. I really love interacting with people. It sounds like what you're sharing is the importance of naming it. Like that awareness piece involves naming it and saying, oh, this is what I'm doing. Shift, reset. Yeah, just, just like that, without any judgment or shame, just like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm judging this person. I've stereotyped this person. And, and the other side of that is when you feel like you're being judged or stereotyped, how do you come back and have a conversation with that person? Do you shame them or blame them or do you get angry or do you just recognize that um, something just happened here and I need to ask a question? So, so it is, it's, it's this idea of constantly resetting. It's just a constant process. Even today, after all these years of doing this work, I am not perfect. I will never be a perfect human being. And the work is about practice. It's not about perfection. Mm-hmm. And so the more opportunities, like every day I wake up, I have an opportunity to practice interacting with people whether I go to Home Depot or I'm doing a workshop with 200 people, we all have opportunities every day. And and every day we're going to do our best and our best is going to look different based on what's happening that day. And so if we just accept that, that we're not going to ever be perfect at it and just keep practicing, then over time, shifts will start to happen if we're really intentional about what we want. Was there more to that process that you were going to share that um, I might have cut you off a little bit with that question? So this will be a little bit longer piece, but what I've learned, I've been doing this bias process since 2002. I actually started it in Boulder when I lived there and and I wanted to practice it. So I got a space at CU and I knew a whole variety of folks, politicians and the president of CU at the time. I invited about 20 people into this room and said, let's have a bias conversation. <laughs> and um, it was really interesting because see, biases are not just things we see about each other. Biases are, are pretty much all the identities that we have from religion to politics to military to body image to age to sexual orientation all of those things play a role and so i remember people were naming biases that they couldn't see and yet were part of somebody in their group and that person would like get emotionally upset and i'd have to bring in my mediation skills and say instead of getting angry at that person just accept your emotion and and think about what it feels like or what it says about you And so I've been using that same process 
up to this week when I was in Washington working with a group of educators. And the reason I haven't changed the process is because it works. And so one of the things I've learned in facilitating this with thousands of people is that there's an origination point for all of our biases, which is why my book is called Finding the Origination Point, Understanding Our Biases to Create a More Peaceful World, is that as adults, the way that we name our bias is how we see it as an adult. It's not necessarily the way that it was imparted upon us. Most of our biases are imparted upon us between birth and adolescence, maybe late high school or early college. And then as we grow into adults, we have what's called confirmation bias, where we see people in those group and go, oh, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one. And so the idea of the origination point is, is that it's the point of healing and understanding. And so I'll just continue with my own story in growing up in that home of abuse where my dad was verbally and physically hurting me. By the time I was 13, I created a bias that all men are mean. And so basically I extrapolated the behavior of one person to a whole group. And so when I was in middle school and I interacted with men, I didn't like them. I didn't trust them. And in my head, the narrative I told myself was they were out to get me. So I would typically destroy the relationship. And, and I had no idea that any of this was going on at 13 because I didn't have any skills. I had no self-awareness and I didn't know it at all. All I knew is that I didn't like men. And it bled into a lot of my other interactions where I treated other people that way too. And I had a bunch of blind spots. So when I got into my 20s and 30s and started doing this work to heal myself, I had to go back to that nine-year-old kid and feel all of those emotions and all of that pain and all of the things that I stuffed because I couldn't continue to carry that high level of emotional baggage and still be healed. So I started to understand where it came from. And so, so what I realized is that my bias isn't really men who are mean. My bias that I still have today is families who don't create a loving and safe place for their children. I still have that bias. Only now when I am in a space like that with, with parents or family, I'm more compassionate and empathetic where when I was 13, 14, 15, I just got mad at them. And I would just probably demean them and be just as mean to them as I thought they were being to their kids. So the origination points the point of healing and understanding. And I'll tell you one more story because it kind of um, surprised me when this happened. And I was working with a group of folks here in Denver and we did the whole foundational bias conversation. And at the end, this um, woman in her mid thirties, she comes up to me and she says, I think you saved my marriage. <clears throat> and I was like, okay, that's an interesting thing to say. I'd never heard that before. And I said, well, please tell me the story. Yes. She said, um, my husband and I have been married for about five years and we've known each other for a while and we've had the normal kind of relationship stuff that couples do. And the last few months, we've been having the worst arguments that we have ever had in our whole time that we've known each other. So I asked her what changed. And she said, well, what changed is that he went from working a 40-hour job to working in this startup that he really enjoyed. So now he was gone 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And through our kind of origination point conversation, her connection that she made is that 
all, when she was 12 years old, her dad abandoned her. And so with her husband gone, as much as he was now gone in this new startup, she felt a sense of abandonment. And so what she did is this 35-year-old woman brought all of that 12-year-old girl's emotional energy into her relationship with her husband, and it became very volatile. And so once she became aware of that, she could understand it, understand where all that emotion came from, and then do her own healing process. And then I asked her, does your husband know this story about you? And she said, no. And I said, well, maybe that's a good place to start. So so that's the power that connection can be around how we see each other as adults and the narratives and the experiences that we had growing up. So that's the other part of the process. That awesome. is, I could talk all day long. So <laughs> I'll let you jump in and ask questions. Yeah, that's great. Thoughts. I find the narrative conversation fascinating because we have so many narratives of different aspects of ourselves and different aspects of other people. And I know that you talk about shifting those narratives, first recognizing them and then shifting them to something that is empowering for the person. And so maybe using this example of the woman who shared with you about her marriage, she now has an opportunity to empower the relationship versus have it be something destructive. Yeah. So essentially narratives are our mindset. It's really the things that we carry around in our heads or the stories that we tell ourselves about what's real and what's not real. And I think the most important thing that I've learned is that our narratives drive our behavior. And so it's not the other way around. Our behaviors don't change our narrative. And, and a lot of what we do in a lot of these spaces, either from a professional or a personal perspective, is we we go to a workshop and we're told by a facilitator that these are the behaviors that you need to change. So we go out and we attempt to change the behaviors without ever thinking about what is the narrative that created the behavior that I want to change? What's the experience that created the behavior that I want to change? And so when we have that skill base of the behavior and we get emotionally charged by something most people quickly digress back into their mindset and their mindset overrules the behavior and they digress into the previous behavior that they're attempting to change. And so for me in the processes that I facilitate in my own personal work, I had to change all my narratives before I could change my behavior because the narrative that I had as a 13 year old and as a 20 year old and even into my thirties was that I wouldn't be successful. I would never amount to anything and I wasn't worthy. And I could go out and tell people, you could ask me something and I could have never done it before in my life. And I would say, oh yeah, Shelly, I can do that. And then I'd have to go figure out how to do it. And, and I thought that if I did that, that over time that would shift my narrative because I could look back and say, oh, I was successful at this and I didn't really know how to do it or I was successful at that until I realized that if I couldn't change the narrative, then my behaviors wouldn't last. So it wasn't a real hard shift. It was consistent. So instead of a narrative that I'd never be successful, I changed that to, I can accomplish anything I choose to. And at first I didn't believe it one bit because again, the narrative that I had for 12, 13 years of my first and most formidable part of my life was that I'd never be successful. I'd never amount to anything. So not only did I have to do new things, I had to just completely change that narrative, constantly tell myself, 
I can accomplish anything I want. I can accomplish anything I want because all the time it would creep in. You're not successful. You can't do that. I can accomplish anything I want. And I'd have like post-its that I put up in my bathroom and I'd write it on my hand. You can accomplish anything. And, and over time I started to believe it more and more. And as my narrative changed, then my behaviors not only changed, they began to be more consistent. So then there came a point, you know, years later where I don't even think about whether I'll be successful because I feel like I have defined what it is that I want to do in life. And for me, it's not even about success. It's about filling my passion. So even this idea of success is subjective because we could talk to 10 parents listening to this and say, tell us what your idea of success is for you. And they would all give us a different answer based on their own experience. And then we could say, tell us what success looks like for your child. And they would give us different answers based on how they're living their life, raising kids. Like, are you living your life through them where you want them to do something more than you did and so you're pushing them in this direction or are you really letting them be who they are and see my dad was wanted me to be like him and I wasn't like him and so I think that's what kind of pushed him over the edge and he kept trying to get me into things so he was in the navy so he put me in the sea cadets and which is the junior Navy. And then he put me in the civil air patrol and I did all these things in the hopes that it would make him happy and it would make him love me. And it never really changed our relationship because what I realized today is he raised me the way that he was raised. You know, you can't, you can't go beyond your own level of consciousness. And so that's why increasing our level of consciousness, which just means increasing our self-awareness is so important, especially in this day and age that we're in, because I can't tell you how many parents I've talked to over the last six months, even my new neighbor where we live in Erie, who told me that um, their siblings are watching their siblings now who used to get along when they get into a political debate or something, replicate the behavior that they're seeing on all of these news channels and in our communities about people who are just attacking each other. So I think it's so important because if we don't, as adults, shift the model of our discourse, we're raising a generation or more of young people who are looking at us and saying, well, that must be acceptable behavior. So, so let's all act that way. So our narratives are a key driver of personal change. And yeah. so that's where a lot of journaling helps. I would write my narratives. I would write what they meant to me. And some of them would create more emotional energy than others. And when I had a high emotional reaction to something, I knew that's where my work was. Mm-hmm. And, and it's still an ongoing process. I still have narratives that don't serve me. There's, there's not as many and they're not as powerful. And yet they're still there. And so I have to really be conscious of my own narratives because I have to do my own work. I have to use this stuff myself. And I'll tell you another story about how I had to shift one of my big biases in a minute, but I'd love to just hear your thoughts or other questions. Back a little bit to what you said in the beginning, that we are human and that we have biases and we have judgments. And the only way to heal is to be able to accept that 
and then move forward and be intentional about it and understand the process. So all of this that you're sharing is, is really demonstrating that we can look at all the unrest that's happened over this last year, year and a half. The other way we can look at it is the opportunity we have right now to model for our children how they can get themselves through this time and be resilient in the face of challenges that you know most people don't even see in their lifetime. Yeah. And, and the way that we as parents talk about people in our home, our kids are all listening to that, whether they're three years old or 13 or 30. I remember growing up, my mom would tell me about those Mexicans, like from a really negative perspective, those Mexicans this and those Mexican that. And I remember I was about 12 years old and I said, um, mom, excuse me, but aren't we Mexican? And she <laughs> said, yes, but I'm talking about those other Mexicans. So I heard negative images and connotations of my own people in my own house. So I took all of those with me into the spaces that I occupied. And so parents need to be really conscious of how they're talking about people and behaviors in their home when their children are around. When your children aren't around, if you want to go off on a group of people, I mean, I'm not going to tell you you're a bad person for doing that. That's up to you. What I am saying, though, is that children are sponges and the things that happen at home are done through this lens that what I see from mom and dad is probably acceptable behavior and acceptable language. I remember years ago, I worked with um, a mom who had a little baby before she could talk and she would drive from Boulder to Denver every day to go to work. She had a horrible body image bias. So all day long while she was driving, she'd look at people and say, gosh, how could you wear that dress? Or did you do your hair this morning? Or wow, aren't you ugly? And about two years later, her daughter started to talk. And all of a sudden out of the back seat, she heard ugly person and realized right there that all of the things that she had been saying to this little child who could not speak were being taken in. And when she started to talk, that was one of the phrases that she heard. And so a lot of us unconsciously impart our biases onto our kids. And I was, I was guilty of that until I realized that my kids are going to have plenty of opportunities to build up their own biases and stereotypes and judgments. I don't need to give them mine. And when I did do that, I had to undo it by saying, you know, I was wrong to talk about those people like that. And, and I can see why you might see them that way because of the way that I talked about them. So I need to say, I'm sorry, and that that was wrong. And that's the other piece that as imperfect human beings, we have to be willing to say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, or I shouldn't have done that. But, you know, the divisiveness in our homes is being watched and felt and seen by our children. And it's like I said, it's not that like you can have those kind of conversations, just be conscious of, of your kids. I've had other people say, well, what do, what do I do about like the news and things like that? And, and I said, well, turn it off. <laughs> like, yeah. When you're getting your kids ready for school in the morning and they're listening to the news and it's about wars and people being murdered and divisiveness, it's all filtering into their brain. So just don't even watch the news until they leave the house, like put on some soft music or have a conversation with them about their day and how they're feeling and, and things like that. And then when they leave, then you can just inundate yourself with all that news, because for the most part, what we do is our children are exposed to these things. And, and I was at 
completely imperfect parent, so I never did this with my kids. But if I had kids today, I would probably sit down with them and talk to them about the things that they heard and saw today. Because as divisive as we are, I want them to understand that that is not acceptable behavior. The things that you see, the things you hear, the ways that we see kids treating each other in our schools is not acceptable behavior, that we can't continue to create this divisiveness without it really impacting our community, because it creates a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma for all of us. And, and I never learned how to unpack my trauma or even look at it um, before I was an adult. Yeah, I, there's such an important piece in what you were sharing too. When we can show our imperfections and we can say, sorry, we give our kids that freedom to not feel like they have to be perfect. And that it is okay for them to be open, be in communication with their parents about things and to say sorry when they've made a mistake. I think I see a lot of parents who, whether it's a conscious thing or not, they struggle with that piece of I'm supposed to be perfect. I'm supposed to do this right. When you present yourself that way, you're teaching your kids that they should be perfect too. Well, let's just free each other up right now and say, there is no expectation for you to be perfect. And we don't even know what perfect looks like. So let's just stop. That's a narrative, right? So that's right. another narrative. I've got to be this. I've got to, I've got to be perfect. Who would you be if you didn't have that narrative? Yeah. You'd be a normal human being who, who walks through the world, who has a lot of successes, who makes mistakes and who can build on their successes and apologize for their mistakes based on the impact that they have. So so this work is not about perfection. It's about practice. It's about just accepting that we are fallible human beings. I have blind spots. As long as I've done this work, I still have blind spots. I still know that I run the risk in any setting that I'm in, whether it's a workshop or a personal interaction where something I may say may hurt somebody. And so then how I respond to it is more of an indicator of who I am versus this idea that I'm perfect because I will tell you this and everyone this, that a defend, justify, or fix conversation is always lose-lose. So that's another thing, a narrative. So if you walk into something and you think, I've got to be right, or I've got to defend myself, or I'm going to make sure they understand why I did this, that's defend, justify, and fix. And, and it's always a lose-lose conversation. And so how do you go into a conversation to just understand what the impact is of whatever you did, whether you had the intent or not, because I could say, well, Shelly, you know, you just took it out of context or it's not really what I meant. And yet your feelings are still hurt. Right. And so I need to at least own that something that happened between us affected you. And I want to know how you experienced me that caused that pain or that hurt, because I don't want to add to anybody's trauma. Like people's complete normalcy around the whole planet was disrupted in March of 2019 when COVID hit and the whole world basically shut down. Yeah. And when we lost our normalcy, trauma went up. I mean, teen suicides went up. People were stuck with each other who didn't like each other. And, and people, some people were fortunate to be stuck with families that they had great relationships with. But even in those spaces, the things that people did even going to the grocery store or um, going for a walk or going to the gym, all the things that we did to de-stress ourselves and move that energy through us was disrupted. And that creates trauma. So I don't think there's anybody on the planet that doesn't have some level of trauma. And depending on 
other experiences that you've had, it just keeps getting added to and piled on and piled on and piled on. And if we have no resource to be able to work it through us, then it just stays in us because the unresolved stuff, it never goes away. It just stays in us as some level of energy. Right. Well, and I think that you're pointing to the layering of things that are happening around our community. Boulder was recently uh, impacted by the shooting at the Kings, the local King Supers that took 10 lives. And I know you've done some healing work. Since we're talking about trauma, can you share a little bit about how people can begin to heal from some of the experiences they've had? Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> big, big question. I, I remember... And for those of you out there who don't know me, I moved to Boulder in 1979, and I lived there up until about 2015 when we moved to Denver and then moved to Oregon for a couple of years for my wife's job. And I remember I was there and I saw this flash across the news and I just went, it pained me because I lived in Martin Acres for years. I shopped in that store for years. I have friends and, and people that I knew who I was thinking about, oh my gosh, were they in the store? And, and so even though I wasn't right here, it still created emotional energy for me. And, and then I had people in Oregon going, did you know anybody there? Because they knew that I had lived in Boulder. And I think this pain that, that we're all carrying goes back to what you said earlier about, well, do perfect human beings live in pain? Well, actually they do. So that's why I say, let's get rid of this narrative of perfect because number one, there's no such thing. And, and trauma, if we don't have a way to move it through us, it just keeps building and building and building. So I don't have like the way that you go through trauma, I can share my own experiences. So my sister died when I was 13 years old. We were sitting and talking just like you and I are right now. And we were talking about going out and going for lunch and going to her house. And the next morning at 6 a.m., the phone rang and my mom was screaming into the phone to call the police, call the ambulance. And her boyfriend said, I think it's too late, she's cold. So she died from one day to the next from acute bronchial pneumonia. And that was probably one of the most traumatic events of my little young life because my sister, the one, she was the one who protected me and who took care of me and also was a recipient of my dad's um, behaviors. And it's just like, it shocked me in ways that I could have never imagined. And the initial way that I dealt with my trauma was with substances. So drugs and alcohol, because I was so emotionally charged and I had nobody to talk to. My school didn't know what was happening. I remember standing outside her house all by myself because they wouldn't let me go in and see her. And it was so hard to be able to rationalize that this person who took care of me that I would never see her again. And so it built this huge ball of anger, which is how my trauma was started was just this huge ball of anger. <clears throat> and I would think about it a lot and I would carry it with me to school and I'd carry it with me in my interactions. And it completely fractured our family because nobody really wanted to talk about it. My dad didn't want to talk about it. My mom didn't have the skills to talk about it. My siblings, it was like all anybody could do was just wait to be 18 years old and leave the home. And so it it first showed up for me and just just really violent anger. And it added to the ways that I interacted with people. So I didn't, I wasn't a good student, but no teacher ever asked me what's going on at home. 
Um, I didn't do very well in the jobs that I was at, but none of my bosses ever said, tell me a little bit about yourself. And over time, like over years, I, I, I just processed it. I would talk to people. I would, I would interact with people who also lost siblings and I would ask them how they went through it. Um, I would read, I would do my best to just get through it. And it was really hard. I'll just tell you, it was, it was really hard because I didn't have a community. I felt just completely alone as a teenager. Over time, I realized that what it taught me about relationships was that if you love and care about somebody, you should tell them right now, because when they're dead, it's too late. And, and I remember as a 13 year old sitting at her funeral and I was sitting in a chair and her casket was over here and all these people were walking by her talking about what a great person she was and how much they loved her. And, and, you know, I'm a 13 year old, pretty twisted kid at the time. And in my head, I'm thinking, who the heck are all you people? I've never seen you in my house. My sister's never talked about you. And now you're here telling her how great she is. Where were you when she really needed you? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the biggest piece of going through hurt and pain and trauma is we have to go through it as a community or as a family And we can't do it if we're not going to be vulnerable. So the reason why that woman that I shared the email from was able to tap into her own pain was that the process that we created wasn't about me. I wasn't in her circle. In her circle were three other people who she worked with and who were all in the same space of tapping into their vulnerability, which essentially when we're talking about vulnerability, we're talking about sharing ourselves through our hearts, telling our stories to each other. They told each other stories. And in the course of telling stories, they each were able to tap into some energy in them that they wanted to heal. So that's a way to work through trauma is is we have to be willing to sit in a space with each other and not defend, justify, or fix, but just be there to in some ways, it's like take on whatever somebody's sharing so that if they can get it out, then they can replace it with something else. And I don't mean take on from the perspective that I'm going to take their pain and now I'm going to add it to mine. I just mean take it on and, and figure out like I think I do now where I'm more like a conduit where I can take emotional energy and process it and and support people just by asking questions about, tell me more, how did that feel for you? What is the, What are the narratives that you created based on that experience? How does that affect you today? And, and I know that we're getting close to it when people either get emotional or they actually start crying. And then I just sit back and, and, and people will wanna do something and I'll just say, don't do anything. Just let that person be in their emotional space. And if you get charged by it, then that's your work. What they need from you is just to be able to cry. And believe me, I cried a lot after I got done being angry. And I think that's why relationships matter so much to me. And it's so much a part of what I do is just to say, if we continue to treat each other the way that we are based on what we see in our country, guess what, folks, we're going to, that's what we're going to get back. And, and I truly believe that each one of us has the ability to be gentle and caring and loving and kind. And we all do it in certain spaces. I had a really interesting conversation on Monday with this guy who's probably in his mid-60s. 
And when we talk about all of this work, we talk about creating connections. So even talking about supporting each other to go through trauma and pain is just about creating connections with each other. And he said, you know, I've been a coach for 48 years. I've been a teacher for 42 years. And I'm really successful at creating those connections with the athletes that I coach. I just don't do it as well in the classroom. And before that, the question he asked me is that, do you really believe that everybody has the ability to do this? And after he said that, I said, well, you just told me that for 42 years, you figured out how to create connections with your baseball players. What is preventing you from taking that same practice into your classroom? And he had a quizzical look on his face because he kind of saw where I was going. I said, you have the skills to do it, except we do it selectively. I think everybody has the ability to be loving and kind to everybody. We just do it selectively. We only give it to our family members or we only give it to those who we believe deserve it, which is another narrative. This is just realizing something I learned in the 80s when I was in Boulder and Lillian Royball Rose came to do a workshop for us. And she said, Bill, if, if you remember these two things, when you're doing your own personal work, and when you're doing this work professionally, you, you will have an impact both in your own life and in other people. She said, remember that everyone has a good heart and everyone deserves to be trusted. Mm-hmm. And I just today just keep imagining what would our community be like if we treated each other like that and, and not as our narrative or not as our bias or not as our stereotype, but as somebody who has a good heart and deserves to be trusted. Mm-hmm. And so I really believe that the process of working through trauma is just sitting and holding space for each other to be vulnerable and to say, here's what I'm feeling and not try to fix each other or not feel sorry for each other or not stop somebody's emotionally charged. I'm not sure what the right word is, emotionally charged discharge or emotionally charged expression Mm -hmm. because, because it makes me uncomfortable right? That's what we do is we stop it because I'm uncomfortable and not realizing that that may be just what Shelly needs is to just have a good cry and, and then to have the people around her just accept and still love her for who she is. Mm -hmm. And so, so a lot of what I do is thinking about what, what would I have needed and what would have supported me when I was 13 years old? And so, so that's where it comes about the importance of connection, the importance of relationships. I think we really have to rehumanize ourselves to each other because the last couple of years, especially we have dehumanized ourselves. Mm-hmm. The only way to rehumanize ourselves is to create connections with each other. You know, and when you go through the pain of what happened at King Super's Um, It affects so many things in people's lives, the ability to trust, the ability to feel comfortable and safe. So, you know, you you really in this country anymore, you can't go to church, you can't go to a grocery store, you can't go to a sporting game, you can't go to a rock concert without on some level thinking about what if that happened here? How do I, how do I get out? What do I do? And I mean, that's an indicator of our, of our society. It's only one indicator. We have all these other indicators and I get to see people who are really hopeful and people who really want to do the work. So that's what gives me hope is being able to talk to you and knowing that there's a lot of people who will listen to this that will say, I'm going to do my own work because it's really important or I'm going to stop talking about those people like that 
in front of my kids. Ideally, I would say, how do you stop talking about <clears throat> those people all the time? And if you could just get to the place where you don't impart them upon your children, that would be a step forward. Yeah. That mantra you shared, everybody has a good heart and everybody deserves to be trusted, is something that people can carry with them. Um, it's powerful. It's very powerful. It's a narrative. See, our narratives are just the things we put in our head. And believe me, when I was 13 and 15 and 20, I didn't think everybody had a good heart and I didn't think everyone deserves to be trusted because of all the things that I went through. And so now at this point, I really do believe that. And it's interesting now, I see people differently when I look at somebody and in my head, I go, you have a good heart. You deserve to be trusted. And sometimes I'll catch myself consciously doing it. And sometimes I, I won't be aware of it. And so it's not like I sit and do it all the time with every person. And it's something that I want people to see in me, that I have a good heart and I deserve to be trusted. And even if you have a misstep with me, you don't have to attack me. You could just have a conversation with me and ask me, what did you mean by that? Yeah. In some ways you've answered this question, especially as it relates to being in relationship and, and creating connectedness. But I always ask our guests on this podcast, how people should show up for their children, whether you're somebody who's a teacher or a coach and you interact with children regularly or as a parent, how is it that, that adults in their life and their world need to show up for them? Well, I'll answer that by saying, if I could have a redo with my kids, I would show up with them differently in a lot of ways. I would have checked my anger and I would make sure that none of that bled over to them or got into them, especially when they didn't deserve it. I would probably be way more inquisitive about why they were doing things and really ask them about their motivation and and I for sure would, would want to teach them more about the power of their mind, that your narrative and your mindset drives everything that you get. And so I would really want to support them increasing their own self-awareness and, and really thinking about the impacts of their behavior. And, and parenting is so challenging because there's not like there's a guidebook you get oh, you're going to have a child. Well, give me the book. You know, you and I have talked about how we're working with our aging parents. There's no guidebook for that either. So, you, you know, there's no guidebook for being a parent and every parent just does the best they can. And I think for me, I learned to be a parent through two parents who didn't have the greatest parenting skills themselves. And I don't think it's because they didn't want to. I think it's because they did what they learned. And I realized that my grandpa treated my dad and his brothers the same way as my dad treated me. So I think as a parent or as becoming a parent, being really self-aware and critically self-reflect on what are some of the behaviors that you're carrying over that you don't really think would have the greatest impact on your parenting based on what you grew up with. So even starting before you have your child to say, here's the pattern I want to change. And here's why. Not because my parents were bad people. I do believe my parents loved me and did the best they could. It's just that I had to turn it up a notch and, and do my best because I didn't want to replicate those same abusive patterns that I had. So, so I think really looking at what is it as a parent that you didn't like and realizing how it affected you and how do you change it? And then taking those things that got you to shine and figuring out how do you enhance those? 
And for everyone, the work's going to be different because we've all had unique life experiences. I think, though, that the process of, of this is pretty similar for all of us. And I think that's where I feel like I can have an impact because everywhere I go, I touch people. And I'm hoping that I touch their hearts. And based on emails like I shared with you, I do. And it's not really me. It's this process. And I don't often know how what people go through affects them because they don't always tell me. I just know that based on the energy in the room and the way people are interacting, that it's new for them. Because I don't demean people and I don't denigrate people and I don't dehumanize them because I didn't like being treated that way. And I would tell parents to give yourself a lot of grace and forgiveness. Be kind to yourself. Just because we're all going to make missteps. I made so many missteps as a parent and and I beat myself up for a lot of them. And that didn't help me to learn and, and seek out other parents and create opportunities for y'all to talk about what you're experiencing today. Because mm-hmm. it's not dissimilar. And whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor, it doesn't matter your socioeconomics. You can't buy your way out of any of this stuff. And, and I think that's what we when we talk about affluent communities, that affluence doesn't mean we don't have the same issues and being in poverty doesn't mean I can't be happy and and live a really rich life. And so take away all of that stuff and just connect with people from their hearts because everybody has a good heart. Everyone deserves to be trusted. Yes. Yes. Um, Well, thank you for having this conversation and for sharing your personal experiences, your wisdom, your, your experience working with thousands of, of people for many years. It's been a, a really rich and wonderful conversation. So thank you. You're welcome. And, and thank you for putting me in a place where I could feel my own emotion and cry a little bit myself. So <laughs> felt my own stuff. Today. You saw it, but didn't necessarily hear it out there. So <laughs> how can people get a hold of you if they want to reach out to you? And you mentioned your book. So I think it would be valuable to share with the audience how they can get your book as well. So my email is inclusiontalk at comcast.net, all one word. My website is called delacruzsolutions.com. My book is called Finding the Origination Point, Understanding Our Biases to Create a More Peaceful World. They're $20. I have a whole bunch of them in my garage. So if you want a book, just email me and you can Venmo or I can take your credit card. I will mail them to you or if you're in the area, I'll bring them to you because I always like to make connections with people. And um, I'm really open to talking with folks. So what I usually tell people, if something that you heard today resonated with you, um, talk about it or reach out to me. If something that you heard didn't resonate with you, talk about it or reach out to me because I know that everything I say isn't going to resonate with everybody. And I want to have all of those conversations because I think it's really important. And so um, we moved back. We live in Erie. So I'm back in Boulder County, which I'm really excited to be here. And I really want to acknowledge the Parent Engagement Network because as you know, it's been around a long time and I've been involved with it in various levels from when I was on the school board in the 90s to being on the board for a little while to now coming back and you all embracing me like you have, which I really appreciate because that's one of the things we missed in that COVID world was our community. 
And so it's really nice to be back um, in our community. And I know that we're going to talk about doing some healing um, practices over the next few months in the community. And unfortunately, some of them will be over Zoom because we can't yet meet in person. And I think that's another way for people to engage with us is to just come in and join those and, and just embrace your family, embrace your friends, embrace people that you don't know, because there's this quote about be kind because everyone's fighting a hard battle and nobody knows what, what any of us is bringing into our day. So just be kind to each other and, and know that it's a, it's a process for all of us. Thank you for that. If you are interested in being part of those healing circles, you can go to our website. We'll have information that will come through our website, which is www.penb as in boy, v as in victor.org. Um, and the other thing I'll say is if you were inspired by this conversation and you want to support our nonprofit, there is an opportunity on our website to donate or become a sponsor if you're part of an organization that would like to be part of that. Um, we really do hope that today's conversation added to your parenting well and that this information and the insights um, that were shared today will help you in raising healthy and happy youth. So it was, a, it was an honor to have you with us, Bill. It's an honor to have Good our time. listeners. And um, until next time, happy parenting. Thanks. Appreciate everybody out there. Have a great day.